great to have you this Sunday evening. Uh, it would be very handy uh, for me uh, and no doubt for you as well if you did have uh, the, the Bible open at that passage as we begin to work through it. Uh, we're in our third week in 1 Corinthians 15. Next week will be our last, the fourth, uh, in this chapter. Uh, there is so much in it uh, to come to terms with and wrap our heads around. Uh, how about I pray that God would be working in us by His Spirit as we dive into this evening's passage. Dearest Father, we do ask that as we listen to you speak to us this evening, your spirit would be taking the words that you speak and translating them to be understood by our own hearts and minds. And in these words, we might find peace and rest for the anxieties and the concerns, the fears that we have for our own bodies and how we experience living in them, that you might give us rest and hope in and through what the Lord Jesus himself has done and his own resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one might imagine that there's nowhere that we should be more comfortable than within our own bodies. Uh, there'd be nothing we could be more familiar with or more in tune with than our own physical selves. After all, these bodies of ours have been with us since the day of our birth. We've never been apart from them. All that we have experienced and known, we have known through them. You might have heard of that phrase, to speak of someone who is comfortable in their own skin. It's to have a person who is comfortable with their whole selves, with their inner selves, their bodily selves, all united together as one. No tensions or strains pulling that sense of self apart. Yet these bodies that we might delight in, in some moments, can the very next moment become the objects of our despising, can't they? And the source of our greatest insecurities, the source of our greatest vulnerabilities. We can feel in these bodies one day, we can feel them pulsing, alive and vital. And then the next day we can feel weighed down and even numbed by the bodies that are ourselves. And it's not just a modern phenomenon, this, this tension to understand and to feel at home and at peace with our physical bodies. Uh, in the ancient world, there was just as much of a tension. The ancient Greek and Roman mythology tells the story of Narcissus. You might have heard of this mythical story before. Uh, a youth who had never loved anything before in life until he saw the reflection of his own beautiful body reflected back to him from the still water of a stream into which he was looking. Uh, yet, this infatuation that he had with the abstract reflection of his own beautiful body turned out to be so all-consuming that he couldn't turn his eyes away from the reflection of himself. And he was so captivated by this vision of himself that he ceased caring for the physical needs of his actual physical body as it wasted away and withered before him. The myth reminds us that we can so idolise an image of our bodily selves that is in reality actually going to be self-destructive for us, harmful for us. But just as a narcissistic infatuation with the image of ourselves can threaten the good of our physical bodies, so too can a careless kind of despising or devaluing of our bodies can be equally as damaging and harmful. 
uh, the philo- uh, philosopher Epictetus. Uh, this was an ancient Greek philosopher writing at about the same time that Paul was writing this letter to the um, Corinthian church. He considered that in comparison with our intellect and our rationality, that thinking about your body was basically a waste of time. This is what he wrote. He wrote, two things are mingled, two things make up the generation of a man, a body in common with the animals and reason, intellect in common with the gods. For they say, what am I? A poor, miserable man with my wretched bit of flesh. Why then do you neglect that which is better, your rationality, your intellect? Why do you attach yourself to this flesh? Now, it seems the Corinthians had combined the worst of both of the attitudes of both Narcissus and Epictetus. They were obsessed with outward shows of superficial glory and image, combined with a pretty dismissive attitude towards the value of our own bodily selves, our physical bodily selves. Uh, Have a look with me at how this little section begins. We're going to be down in verse 35. Verse 35, talking about the, the bodily resurrection, Paul writes... But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, says Paul, about such questions. Now, I always kind of thought that these questions that were being asked here kind of were reasonably reasonable and predictable questions to ask. If someone's talking about bodies being raised from the dead, it kind of seems pretty natural to ask, well, what kind of bodies are going to come out of the ground? But Paul isn't here addressing people who have a legitimate curiosity about the bodily resurrection, but rather those who are scoffing at the idea of resurrection as absolute nonsense. What is gained, these Corinthians were probably asking, what is gained if we're simply raised from the dead in the same bodies that have already proven too frail to endure life to begin with? The body that I was in just died. What's the good of raising that same body again from the dead? Paul is anticipating the objection of those believers for whom the very idea of being raised bodily from the dead was either ridiculous or kind of a grotesque idea, perhaps, even. And Paul's response to their squeamish scepticism uh, is there for us down in verse 36. Let's see how Paul answers them. After having labelled their sceptical questioning foolish, he goes on to write, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Paul addresses the Corinthian scepticism over the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, by drawing upon the analogy of a seed and the tree into which that seed will eventually grow. Uh, In one sense, the the seed and the tree that grows from it are, they're the same single identity, aren't they, really? The, The seed that is planted determines the tree that grows. They are one and the same. One becomes the other. There is no divide between them. You plant a peach tree, you're not going to get an acorn, like an acorn tree um, coming out of it. The seed is the same identity as the tree that comes from it. But it's equally true that while it's in its seed form, 
the plant is still unmatured. It's not yet become all that it is destined to yet be. Uh, As one theologian I was reading this week pointed out, a seed does not reach its full potential by simply being dug up out of the ground, dusted the dirt off and polished up into a, a state of pristine seedness. That's not how a tree reaches its fulfilment, its fullness. And Paul's saying, neither will our own resurrection simply be a matter of digging up our bodies, dusting them off and returning them to the peak condition of their early 20s, just to pick an age. See, friends, the body is destined for a far greater glory than just an eternal rerun of young adulthood, as if that was the pinnacle of what God could ever have imagined for these bodies that he has created for us. The promise of the bodily resurrection is not primarily that those who have lost sight or who have lost limbs or who are missing chromosomes will simply have them restored to them, as if an outwardly whole, able-bodied person will be the template or the gold standard that God is working towards for us. Instead, friends, our bodily transformation will be of such splendour and glory so as to make our present bodily differences from one another seem embarrassingly irrelevant by comparison. The difference between this present body's splendour and the comparative glory of the resurrected body uh, is unpacked for us in the next few verses. Have a look there with me at verse 39. Comparing the glory of this or the splendor of this body with the splendor of the body to come, Paul writes, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies And there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. God always gives bodies that he creates, that he makes. He always gives them the perfect fit for the creaturely place and calling that he has given to them. Their bodies are always a perfect fit for what he calls them to be. Humans have a body befitting their place as rulers and carers of creation. Fish have a body befitting their place in the sea. Animals and birds have bodies suiting their own ecosystems as well. Likewise, with heavenly bodies, that is, bodies that inhabit the space, the sun, the moon and the stars, they each have bodies that befit their place in the heavens. We would not expect an orangutan's body to be at home orbiting around the earth. Nor would it be fitting if a human had a body that flared and flamed like the sun. Now, in the same way that fish fit in the sea and the sun in the sky so our resurrection bodies will fittingly be transformed for the environment of eternity that we are yet to receive. Everybody is created with a splendour, a glory. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? There's bodies that have an earthly splendour and those that have a heavenly splendour that perfectly befits the place in God's purposes. And yet we often struggle to recognise 
and wonder at the splendor of these bodies, don't we? Do we often contemplate our own bodies in the way that the psalmist thought of his body? Do you remember in Psalm 139, where he writes, not of his, you know, prime, you know, 22-year-old fit body, but of his unformed body in his mother's womb, he describes that body as wondrous, as a wonder of God's handiwork. It is the pinnacle, the glory, the splendor of all the works of God's hands, even that unformed body. For as intrinsically good as our bodies are created, even though we should see the splendor of them, the problem is that as intrinsically good as our bodies were created, they are often subjected to that which is not good of this fallen world. Have a look with me at verse 42, where Paul picks this idea up, verse 42. Paul says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. I don't think that Paul is saying in these verses that our present bodies that we enjoy now were from the start fundamentally and essentially perishable, dishonourable, weak and natural. That's not what Paul is trying to say, as if God somehow sold humanity a faulty, defective product on the first run through. These bodies of ours really do have their own splendour, their own glory about them that God himself has given to them. Yes, our bodies have even natural limits to them, But they are a part of God's good design of our bodies. The limits that our bodies have are not a bug, they are a feature of how God designs what it means to be a human. And in fact, I suspect that even our resurrected bodies will have limits to them. Their limits are not bad. But friends, the wear and tear that comes along with life in this fallen world will ultimately leave its mark upon these wondrous bodies of ours. The mark of perishability Paul mentions there. There'll be a day when the natural limits of our bodies will actually be overrun by death itself. Weakness, these these bodies will habitually prove powerless to deliver what we might have hoped to have received from them or gotten out of them or how we had wished to experience them. And then there's the mention there, I wonder if you noticed as we were reading through, of dishonour. Now, it's not that there's something fundamentally shameful or unpresentable about these wondrous bodies that God himself has given us. There is no work of his hands that God would ever disown as being unworthy of him. These bodies are his wonderful handiwork. No, rather, I think what Paul's mentioning here when he he talks about the dishonour that our bodies labour under... It's we as God's creatures who clothe these bodies of ours with dishonour. We're the ones who bring dishonour upon the bodies that God created wonderful. See, our bodies come with histories, don't they? Memories of shame in the past so potent that they can sometimes feel, that shame, that dishonour, can sometimes feel as interwoven into our very being 
as our strands of DNA themselves. An almost unbearable sense of unworthiness that we can't ever seem to to untangle from the goodness of the bodies that God has given us. But think about it this way, when Adam and Eve, you might recall this in the Garden of Eden, when they hid from God in the Garden of Eden because of the shame, it wasn't because their bodies had somehow become any less wonderful or beautiful in God's eyes. That's not why they were hiding. Rather, it was the stain of their sin that coloured everything good in the hue of humiliation. They felt the humiliation of their sin at the core of their very selves, even in their bodily experience. Sometimes, sometimes it's we who dishonour our own bodies through our shameful use of them. And we've seen examples of how that played out for the Corinthian church, haven't we, over previous weeks. But heartbreakingly often, it's others who dishonour our bodies, perhaps in words that they speak of us or to us, or in the actions, the way in which they treat us and our bodies, leaving us seemingly tattooed with these marks of shame and dishonour that we'd perhaps done nothing ourselves to actually deserve. But whether it was because of our own action or because of the actions of others, our bodies bear the memories of the shame and the dishonour nonetheless. They labour under the weight of that shame and that dishonour, whether it's a weight that we brought upon ourselves or whether it's a weight that someone else perhaps placed upon us. I'm going to pause for a moment and Lauren's going to come up and share a few extra reflections about how this might shape and think, uh, impact the way in which we think about our own bodies uh, with respect to one another. Uh, so we've been seeing from these verses that this kind of uh, inherent, there's this kind of inherent splendor to our creatureliness, that being made by God, there's a dignity and a really fitting uh, nature to both how our bodies exist in this world and to their limits, to that finiteness that uh, draws us to really depend on God. And yet there is also this reality of life in this world kind of being a series of moments where we are vulnerable to the dishonour and weakness that, be, that can be heaped upon us as physical creatures in one way or another. I find that these realities and the feelings of dissatisfaction, disappointment or frustration with some aspect of life in a body these can make it really hard to embrace any notion of resting or rejoicing in the splendour God has given to these bodies of ours. It's just, it's so much in the fabric of our culture uh, to really disdain some aspects of the body's humility. We're harshest towards ourselves on this stuff as well. We'll more readily imply that it's not okay for our own body to fail us in one way or another than we would ever express to someone else, someone in our family, a friend, or someone here amongst us, amongst our brothers and sisters here. And so it, it can feel like quite an overhaul in our thinking to really embrace some of the implications of this passage. And so I wonder what it might look like for us to really help one another to embrace some of these ideas. Because I think how we hear others speaking um, about themselves can start to really feel like a mirror held up to ourselves and how we should examine uh, our own standing and what we think of ourselves. Uh, that's a, a little bit like um, when I was in high school, I had this friend, she was very bright, but she was also very hard on herself when it came to exam results. And 
most times that we got results back, there'd be some tears. But the thing was that mostly she was crying about a 90 that wasn't a 95. Uh, and there I was standing there trying to comfort her by pointing out, oh, I think you should probably be pretty happy about that. I only got, you know, 70, 75, whatever, insert fairly average mark. Um, you know, I was, in those moments, I was really throwing myself under the bus for her to kind of back right over and say, oh, but that's, that's okay for you. Um, I actually I had started out feeling fine about my pretty average marks most of the time, but her, her self-berating always made me second guess whether I should feel fine about those. And in a similar way, when it comes to the complexities of life in a body, we can often end up voicing harsh words about our own selves that teach others to do the same. But what might it look like to use words that can actually bear witness uh, to this idea of splendor and dignity and how God has made each of us, even with these limits that we've heard about? Uh, as I talked about this passage with different people through this week, there were a couple of areas of kind of culturally uh, driven dissatisfaction with our bodies that kept uh, kind of coming to mind, where perhaps the things that we say uh, or refrain from saying sometimes could enable each other to resist the pull of feeling a kind of disdain for our creaturely limitations. Uh, the first one was hustle culture, that kind of that culture where uh, we're always carrying the pressure to be busy, to be productive, to be doing the next thing, to be doing enough and being enough. And then the other one was, um, I guess, kind of diet culture, you'd call it, those really per pervasive uh, thought patterns and ideas around moralizing particular foods as good or bad and particular body types as good or bad as well. It's a bit sad to reflect on, but I know that in my life, I've kind of seen that these are a couple of areas where the Christian world doesn't always speak and think all that differently to the non-Christians around me as well. In the past, I've seen people praising and upholding the person who seems to have extraordinary stamina and capacity and an ability to always do. And likewise, I've seen Christian people praising and upholding things like physical appearance, even weight loss and restraint as though those are a success. But neither of these patterns really honour the right reality of our creatureliness, that we have natural limits, and that the splendour of our physical bodies comes from a substance that is far greater and deeper and richer than outward appearance. For some of us, perhaps it feels hard to take a step back or a step aside from the demanding expectations that we can feel like we need to hold ourselves to. But what might it look like to use words that can actually bear witness to this idea of splendour and dignity in how God has made us. I think we can seek to be wise in how we speak about our busyness, about the output of others or ourselves, uh, not keeping our need for rest uh, kind of under wraps as though that was something to be ashamed of, or expressing impatience with those times where we feel like we really need some rest and, and perhaps even need some help in carving out time to be able to recharge. And we can seek to be wise in when we might voice struggles that we might feel with our own appearance or size, uh, whatever it may be, especially, I think, holding back from this in front of our own uh, kids or teenagers. We can instead praise the potential of food to nourish our bodies, ready to serve one another, and just the delight that it can bring and the way that it can bring people together as we break bread. Because as we anticipate the resurrection... We're anticipating not a time where these specific things that we're dissatisfied with are perfected, but where we'll have bodies that are, are of an entirely different splendour, 
uh, as Steve just said, fittingly transformed for that environment of eternity. And so we'll be existing in amongst a gathering of creatures where such expectations no longer shape the way that we think uh, of our bodies and of others. And so as we hope towards that change, uh, let's honour rather than deny the goodness of what God's taking us towards. God is determined to release these bodies from the crushing weight of dishonour, as Romans 8 describes, then how unfitting would it be to despise these physical selves that God himself delights in? Uh, Paul also, um, oh, I should just give a little bit of a reminder, if you've got any questions, don't forget to be scanning and sending those through. Uh, But continuing on with these descriptions that Paul has given, not only is the body... Uh, sown perishable, raised imperishable, the one that's sown in dishonour, raised in glory, the one that's sown in weakness, raised in power, but the one that is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. Uh, Let's pick up that idea um, once again from verse 44, and I'll read uh, to the end of our little section for this evening. So, verse 44. Speaking of our bodies, Paul writes, it is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ there, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man, Christ, is of heaven. As was the earthly man so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that is Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And speaking here of the natural body and the spiritual body, Paul isn't suggesting that we'll be transformed from a body that is made up of matter and atoms and transformed into something like a ghost-like, non-physical existence, from a a physical body to a non-physical body. Rather, Paul's insisting that our resurrected bodies won't be the product of natural, procreative processes, the passing on of a parent's own mortal DNA and chemistry. It'll be the spiritual power of God that gives our resurrection bodies life. Neither will our resurrected bodies fulfill some personal ideal, uh, as Lauren was mentioning just a moment ago, that we might have felt that we were destined to become. God isn't about fulfilling our own, often quite limited visions of who we could be. Rather, we're going to be reformed, this passage says, in Christ's likeness, not in the likeness of our own longings. And we'll come back to have a little bit more of a reflection upon what does it mean to be of the second Adam, of Christ's likeness next week. But it's ultimately not within the natural power of any of us to make our own bodies whole, to transform them in a manner that will leave us feeling at home in them as we should. There is no course of medication, no physical conditioning, no surgical procedure, no hormone treatment that will ultimately and finally deliver the kind of bodily integrity 
that we so long for. Only the power of the resurrection, only the resurrection power of God's Spirit can truly and completely make us at home in these physical bodies of ours. The promise of the resurrection truly is wonderful news for those who feel most frustrated with or even most alienated from their own physical selves. Whether it's a barely acknowledged, kind of just vague, lurking dissatisfaction that has seeped into our thinking from the surrounding culture, or perhaps it's a more pronounced and paralyzing awareness of our bodily frustration that might be experienced by those with gender dysphoria. As genuinely good and worthy and wonderful as these mortal bodies of ours are, they are only the seed for what God yet promises they will become. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, makes this point beautifully in one of my favourite quotes, I think, that uh, I've read of his. Uh, Writing of the resurrection body, he writes this, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. I would never have thought to have made that kind of link between this present body of mine and that of what it will one day yet become. And yet, this is not only how we are to think about others, this is as true for how we also are to think about our own bodily selves. We are each destined to share in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Himself. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul, uh, the man who wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, when he was on the way to persecuting and arresting Christians, was confronted with the resurrected Jesus? And what was it that he experienced? A blinding light that left him blind. Such was the glory of that resurrected body, the kind of glory that we ourselves will one day share in. It's a wonderful truth that we'll return to consider more next week in our final week on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, In a moment, we're going to continue uh, with a song again. I'm going to pray before we do that. Uh, But don't forget, if you do have any questions, please uh, send those through and we might have a a crack at them later if there are any. Dearest Father, we perhaps often put to the side of our thinking those areas of dissatisfaction, dishonour, maybe even shame that we feel about our physical selves. For others of us, that dishonour will be an ever-present, continuing, unabating weight that we carry around within our physical selves. There will be those of us who are aware of our own perishing bodies, those who are aware of our weakness, of our seeming incapacity to do with our bodies that which we feel we should be able to do. And yet, Father, it won't be our own natural power that ever makes these bodies whole, but rather the power of your Spirit who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Father, we do ask that in view of this glory to which you have destined us, we might both delight in the splendour we now enjoy and endure through that which frustrates it. 
We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.